Um, as we continue um, our summer series, Welcome to the Kingdom, that we started like nine weeks ago, um, we're going to be talking about today about uh, a topic that probably should have made our original list. I think I told you I just kind of grabbed like this, this generic thing that I found on an encyclopedia page. It was like the seven things that every single kingdom, that make a kingdom. And, uh, and I, uh, I needed seven weeks so it like fit perfect. And we decided to go ahead and expand it so we're over our seven week limit now. But, um, but this didn't make that original list as I thought about it. Probably should have because we're going to talk today about the economy of the kingdom. Uh, and, and like I say, this wasn't on the encyclopedia page, but I have to assume every economy or, or every kingdom ever has had like an economy and a currency and, and that kind of thing. Um, and God's kingdom is absolutely no different. Um, and this, I don't know why I'm still wearing this. And this, uh, this topic, um, is, is pretty timely, uh, as the kind of world economy and our country's economy are obviously a hot topic. Uh, today, as we face some of the highest inflation rates we've had in decades and supply chain issues and interest rates are going to go up and all this upheaval in the world today around our economy. Uh, and I think it's picking on a fear uh, that we all have. Uh, and I think it's a it's a bigger feel, fear now than maybe it has been in the past. It's it's really kind of uh, taking over something I heard this week called FORO. FORO. Anybody familiar with FOMO? Everybody know what that means? Um, FOMO means the fear of missing out. It's like a, it's a, a catchphrase now that the fear of missing out. I get teased all the time for having like pretty intense FOMO. I hate missing out on things. When I grew up, I got grounded a lot. Um, I wasn't very good at following the rules. Uh, but unfortunately, along with that, I also wasn't very sneaky and I was a terrible liar. So not only did I break the rules all the time, I got caught all the time. And so I, I spent a lot of time um, grounded. And my mom and I had this little dance we would do every time I'd get grounded where there would be like some super important party the weekend that I'm grounded. And so I would go in and I'd be like, Mom, please. Like the idea of missing a, a big party was crippling to me, like crushing. And so I'd go in and, and, uh, and I would beg like, please, Mom, can I, can I just go to this one party? Um, and I didn't even really like parties. Like it, it wasn't really my scene. But... Um, but the most painful words on the planet was, oh, man, you should have been there. It was awesome. You know, just gut me. That's like the worst thing you can ever say to me was, you know, you missed it. And so uh, and so it wasn't really anything specific I wanted at a party. I just didn't want to miss out on, on something big that might happen. And so I, what my mom would do is I'd go in and like, bump, please, can I go? I'd explain how huge this party is and how socially like unacceptable it would be to miss it and how my whole reputation's on the line and blah, 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 blah. And, uh, and I think my mom has a little FOMO too, so I think she got it, you know. Um, but she also wanted to be tough and stick to her rules. And so, um, so I would go in, I'd say, Mom, this party's huge. If you'll just let me go, I'll be grounded for two extra weeks. Like, I'll stay for two extra weeks. And she would be like, No, if you're gonna go, it's three weeks. And I'd be like, Oh, I can't do three weeks. And we'd start this negotiation back and forth. And she was using it to kind of gauge just how important this party was to me. If I'm willing to give up three weeks, then it must be a pretty big deal. And I'm, I'm having to learn to look into the future a little bit. I think we talked about my event horizon. It was not very, so I'm thinking, are there any other big parties coming up? I really don't want to miss also. And, and, uh, and so usually we would come down to some agreement and it never failed. I'd go to the party and nothing would happen. And I'd come home and be like, I can't believe I gave up three weeks of, of going out for that. And, and, uh, because I had FOMO. That's the power of FOMO. Like it, it'll make you do crazy things. The fear of missing out on something. Once I bought, a CD-ROM uh, of, of a sign language class 
from the PBS auction. Like, I saw it. And it was all because the church we went to had an awesome deaf ministry. And I used to watch them talk to each other. And I was like, I feel like it would be so awesome if I could understand what they were saying from, like, across the room. And so I tried to learn sign language just so I could eavesdrop on deaf people because I hate missing out on what they're saying. I don't know what they're saying. And it drives me crazy because I have FOMO. and, and ladies' events are the worst because ladies are chatty and I love talking. And so I watch them have these long, like, deep conversations and I have to sit out and it freaks me out. I hate it. I have FOMO. And, uh, but as much as I get teased for my FOMO, hearing this phase FORO this week um, made me think that this is a much more crippling fear, um, especially in, uh, in our country right now. It's grabbing hold of our country. FORO is the fear of running out. The fear of running out. Anyone got FORO anywhere on different things? I can always tell the people in the crowd with a little bit of FORO when I talk about so casually about how often I run out of gas. And I see some of your faces like, like pan. I think some of you guys like leave church and drive straight to a gas pump, whether you need it or not. Just like, oh, that made me feel anxious him talking about running out of gas all the time. Like, you got fear of running out, right? That FORO. I've seen like, I've seen FORO like deep, panic in Esther and Dale's eyes when they plan out food for an event. Like, I think they both have like real terror nightmares of, of throwing a party and running out of food. Like, Dale, biggest fear on the planet, maybe? Like, <laughs> like if you ever eat with Dale, there's enough food for four times the people that show up. Like, and it's like so afraid of running out. I've watched Esther like do long math problems, carry the one, and then you like, to make sure she's got enough food for an event, that fear of running out. And, and uh, so as we sit kind of struggling with the world's economy today, I thought it would be a good idea to look at the kingdom economy and, uh, and, and dive into a passage that addresses both FORO and, uh, and the kingdom supply chain. So I'm going to be reading in John 2, uh, and many of, you be, many of you will be very familiar with this passage. Uh, and you can follow along in your own Bible or app or or the words should be on the screen, but it says, The next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus' disciples were also invited to the celebration. And the wine supply ran out during the festivities. So Jesus' mother told him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, that is not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold about 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told his servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip out some and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servant followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water uh, that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has, uh, has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. One of my favorite lines in scripture. I've got to just get this out. It's not really uh, has anything to do with our our uh, our uh, study today, but it comes from this passage. This isn't something you're going to get from a marriage seminar or anything like that. But I've been trying it at home on Esther, and it's this line. I like it better than the NIV where Jesus says, Woman, why do you involve me? That's, you know, when Esther's like, Hey, the trash needs to be taken out. I'm like, Woman, why do you involve me? Um, 
and uh, or a, a baby needs a diaper change or, or whatever. It works in all kinds of situations. Very versatile <laughs> verse. And, uh, and I can tell I'm using it right because she ignores me and puts me to work just like Mary did to Jesus. So, um, so I can tell it's, I'm, I'm using it right. Look at me being just like Jesus. Um, <laughs> but this is the famous turning water into wine story. Um, and I think it's unfortunate that we get caught up in the specifics of the miracle uh, itself because we miss the real power of the passage. The real emotional depth of this passage comes from Pharaoh. It comes from the fear of running out. Um, and any first century uh, Jew who reads this passage would have felt that like deep abiding tightness in the chest and that uh, maybe a little acid in the stomach that comes from the fear of hearing about a family who runs out of something. Um, it, it, it comes from the furrow. It was a huge deal in that day. Uh, first of all, weddings ran for a week. It wasn't just like a 40-minute service followed by a reception. It was a week-long event when you had a wedding, and, and people traveled from all over. Uh, and obviously travel was slow and, uh, and, and difficult. And so, uh, uh, so when people came, they expected to be fed and they expected there to be provisions um, for them. In fact, there are some historical accounts of grooms, because it was actually the groom's family that provided for the wedding back then, um, uh, running out of things and, and the mother-in-law suing the groom because, uh, uh, for, for damages to her reputation. Um, so cue every mother-in-law joke, you know. Um, and there are accounts of, of people uh, like uh, issuing uh, receipts for reimbursement if they come to a wedding and they wind up having to find their own provisions because it runs out. They would, they would expect the groom's family to pay them back for that because there's like an expectation that if you invited me here, you would provide for me, like you would take care of me. And so there's a lot of pressure uh, to, to here, so guests could could bill you for uh, recompense if if you didn't if you didn't provide for them the way was expected. Uh, so the fear of running out was enormous. This is a really big deal that happens here. So we have this tendency to kind of cling to the fact that Jesus turned water into wine and the specifics of the miracle itself. But what I would like to ask this morning, as we go through this passage, is what are you afraid of running out of? What is your furrow? Don't, you don't have to tell me. We're not going to you know get all personal with each other, but. Um, but take a little poetic license with this, uh, with this story and take the, the wine out of it. Um, because in our context, if, if, if you provide alcohol for your family and they drank it all, it's probably time to stop. Like it's making a, nothing good's going to happen by making an 11th hour run to the liquor store. You know, like when we run out, it might be a good thing. Maybe we've had enough. But in this story, it's different. So take that piece out of it because we don't really always get that piece, but, um, but take some poetic license and change the story around. Maybe it's money. Maybe that's your foro. Maybe I'm, what if I run out of money? What if I don't have enough? Is that your foro? Do you, do you constantly live with the fear that there won't be enough? Maybe this story to you is about wisdom. Do you fear that, that you won't know what to do or what decisions to make? Or, or, or maybe you've been doing okay so far, but, but what, if I, what if I don't know what to do? What if I don't know how to handle something. Maybe it's joy. Maybe you're in a good mood today, but you can feel depression lurking uh, around the corner and, and you live in FORA. What if I run out of joy? What if, what if I go back to being down all the time? For me, it's creativity. Creativity is one of my biggest FORAs. There's nothing I love more than 
than studying the scripture and, and putting together a message for you guys. That's one of, I absolutely love it. It's one of the greatest joys of my life. But it's also terrifying because not only do I live with the fear of like getting it wrong and teaching something wrong, that's almost crippling at times. But, but the bigger thing is I don't feel like I teach the Bible because I'm smart. Like, like I have invested a lot of time in, in study over the last 30 years. I've crammed a lot of information there to kind of load the tank, but I don't feel like I'm, I'm teaching out of my intelligence. I feel like for some reason I make creative connections between the scripture and I see things that not everybody sees and it doesn't feel like a gift I have full control of. I'm afraid every time I sit down on my computer that nothing's going to come out and I'm going to sit down and not be able to come up with a sermon. And it's, and, and I have a fear of running out. I have FORO that, that, like it'd be better if I felt like I was smart and I knew I could just grab anything and teach it. But I don't feel like that. I feel like it kind of comes from God and I'm like, oh my goodness gracious, like what if I sit down and it's not there? What if I just sit, like every now and then I'll get writer's block and then it's like a crippling physical pain when I sit at an empty screen and go, I don't know what to write. I don't know what to write. I don't know what to write. It's terrible. For me, that's it. I, 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 I hate... That, that I might run out of creativity. What if I run out of sermons? It's a, it's a terrifying fear. I fear running out of time. You know, it's, it, I'm not good with time management anyway. And, and there are things like relationships with my kids that take time and, and, uh, and I need to accomplish all this other stuff. And I'm scared I'll run out of time to impact my kids. I'm afraid that by the time I get to them, it'll be too late. I have thorough fear of running out. So what are you afraid of running out of? Are you afraid of running out of energy? Are you afraid of running out of compassion? Are you afraid of running out of the essentials to live? I, I think all of us suffer from some foro in some area. And this story is a foro story. It's a fear of running out story. The people ran out. Their situation was wine, but plug your situation into this story. And it should read the same. They ran out. And when they ran out, they turned to Jesus, which is the first thing I want to draw to this passage because I think Mary in this passage, in this story, is a model of how we should act when we run out or when there's a risk of running out. Whenever we have a tendency to, whatever it is we have a tendency to run out of, the first thing she does is she stays in her lane, which I love. It says the wine supply ran out during the festivities. So Jesus' mother uh, told him they have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. And I absolutely love this. First thing Mary does in this passage is turn to Jesus. She turns directly to Jesus. Jesus says it's not his time yet. And he says it in a way that, that I, that, as though she really understood what that meant. Um, but I think it's huge that, uh, that, that she turns to him. Because sometimes we, uh, we have a tendency to, to not turn to Jesus as often as we could. We worry about if we should pray about this, if, if this situation is worthy of prayer, wondering if it's God's will to pray for that or not, or if we should just ask for God's will. And, and sometimes we get con, con, confused about what's worthy of prayer. I get a lot of prayer requests uh, for my Tuesday and Thursday prayers that starts with, I know this is silly, but. Like people are like, I know this is silly to ask for prayer, but, and blah, blah. And just for the record, I don't pray any different for a prayer that's like silly, but. And I'm going to tell you why in a minute. But I don't think those are silly prayers. Mary doesn't seem to struggle with any of the judgment calls here. She's asking for help. She's asking for a miracle to provide wine for a wedding party. And she doesn't go, oh, is this worthy? Is this, you know, she just goes straight to Jesus. They've run out. That's all she says. 
And one of the most haunting verses in Scripture to me on this topic is from Matthew 7, 6. It says, Don't give what is holy to dogs, nor cast your pearl before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you into pieces. And this is a weird verse because uh, most Bibles that split everything into pericopes, they'll, they'll put this one all by itself. The, the passage before it is talking about um, pulling the, the plank out of your own eye before you look at your brother's speck, and we're pretty familiar with that. And the one after it is ask, seek, and knock, for when you, you know, ask, it's given to you, and you knock, it's open, when you, you know, that one. And this one's just right in the middle. So a lot of Bibles will put that just like a verse all by itself, like Jesus just spit out this one little verse. But a, a couple years ago when I was studying this, I realized how it ties in. And I didn't really understand it until then, until I was actually having to teach it. But ask, seek, and knock, Jesus says. In other words, uh, when, we, when we don't have what we need, when we have a desire, when we have a, uh, a concern, he says, bring those to God. Bring those straight to God. Ask, seek, knock for what we don't have. And I, I think if we don't do that, what we have a tendency to do is take those needs, those deep desires before swine. We can have a tendency to take them to the wrong Place. If we don't bring them to God, we can take them anywhere. I think that we have a tendency to fill those needs in very unhealthy ways. When you have this burning desire in your gut or this deep-seated fear maybe, we can either ask God, ask, seek, or knock, or we'll end up casting those pearls before swine. One of the best pictures I think is in the Bible is Esau. Esau went hunting, came back really hungry, and he was so hungry he begged his brother for a bowl of beans. And at that point, his brother was a swine. And, and Esau's hunger drove him to sell his birthright for beans, to cast his pearl before swine. Esau took his, took his hunger to the wrong place. He took it to his brother and lost his birthright. And it's crazy to think that the only thing between us calling the children of Israel the children of Esau and referring to the forefathers as Abraham, Isaac, and Esau is a sack lunch. Like... If Esau doesn't allow himself to get that hungry, the whole story changes. His hunger cost him. And I think we can do the same thing if we allow our hearts to go unheard. If we allow ourselves to get too hungry, we can do stupid stuff. How many unhealthy relationships are rooted in, in unaddressed hunger? Because we don't take those needs to God. We look for somebody else to fill them. How many addictions are, are taking our pearl before swine? Because we don't know what to do with this hunger. We don't take it before God. And so, we, we, so, so Jesus is like, hey, don't cast your pearl before swine. Go to God. Ask, seek, knock. Let him help you with this. When Jesus says, don't take your uh, pearl before swine, he's saying, take him to heaven. Take him to, Jesus, take him to, to God. Uh, because otherwise, uh, they'll trample you. Those hungers can trample you. So in today's passage, Mary goes straight to Jesus. But I also love that she has no idea what Jesus is going to do. Like she, she doesn't, she doesn't uh, uh, give any orders. She just says, do whatever he tells you. Um, she doesn't guess what he might do. Uh, there are some stories in the Old Testament that would have given some precedent. There's a, there's a widow who, who went to a, a prophet to ask for help, and he said, hey, go borrow some jars, take your one little jar of oil, and just pour it into jars. And every time she would pour it, it, would, it there was enough to just fill up jars. And so, you know, she, uh, uh, she was able to sell jars of oil to provide for herself. Mary might have went, hey, maybe we find somebody's leftover glass of wine and we just start pouring it and it just makes more wine. Like, she had some precedent to think that might be how it happens. There's another story where a lady had just enough cornmeal to, like, make her final meal and then die. 
And the, and the prophet said, no, make me a, something first. And she was like, okay, no final meal. So she makes him some bread and looks back and there's more meal. And so she makes her and her son some and she looks back and there's more meal. And so there's, there's some precedent there. Mary's like, well, maybe that's how. But she doesn't guess. She just says, do whatever Jesus tells you. Do whatever he tells you. So Mary has some precedent for guessing what he might be, but that's not what she does, which is the next thing I kind of want to draw out. Um, the answer to our prayers, oh, wait a minute. I lost my place. The answer to our prayers is, uh, is often linked to our obedience. Do whatever he tells you to do. Jesus does a stone-cold amazing miracle, but it required people to do something. They had to, they had to join in this miracle. They had to fill up 20, 30 gallon jugs of water in that day when you didn't have flowing taps. It took a lot to fill up. There's some work involved here. The, the servants did it, but in that day, house servants like that, especially at a party like this, were just as emotionally invested in the family as, as anybody. So they would have been just as, uh, as, as emotionally invested in this miracle happened as anybody else. But, uh, and, but, but they had to do something. And I'm not saying there's a formula you can put into a miracle. If you do this, this, and this, you're guaranteed. That's not like that at all. But I am saying step number one to praying that God give you a miracle is, is to, to do what you can do. If you're praying that God give you health, start by eating healthy. Like start by doing the, and living healthy. The first prayer to God meeting your financial needs is to be both responsible and generous with your money. Like when you, like you don't just pray for a miracle, you actually join in. Step number one to praying that God save your kids' souls is to invest in your kids' souls. We have to do something. Over and over, and I wish I had time to go through some of them, but over and over, Jesus would do an absolutely divine miracle. And then he would tell the newly healed person or whatever, go do something. Go report to the priest. Go wash in the, in the thing. Go pick up your bed and go home. Like there was, a, there was a do something attached to the miracle. And the do something didn't provide the miracle. Jesus provided the miracle, but it came with something they were supposed to do. So often our miracles include our obedience. But the thing that I want to, to draw up most is that when Mary says uh, to do what Jesus says, she gets herself out of the way. She doesn't go to Jesus and ask for a recipe and then bring the recipe back and start bossing everybody around. Here's what you need to do. And you've got to be careful. When you're like praying for a miracle and somebody's like, here's what you need to do. Like, you want to be careful of that. Because she was just like, hey, I can't tell you what to do. Do whatever he tells you to do. Esther and I have been working on this with our, with our kids because it's hard. We so naturally want to control their behavior, right? We so naturally want to tell them exactly how to do this. But we also know in our hearts the most beautiful thing they could ever do is form the kind of relationship with Jesus where they do whatever he tells them to do. And so we're, we're trying to work to start going, you do what Jesus tells you to do. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. Which begs the question, and I'm sure this popped into your head. Um, what do you do if you don't know what to do? What do you do if you don't know what he's telling you to do? What do you do if, if, if you're praying and, and, and nothing is coming? Many of us would love to do whatever God is telling us to do. We're dying to do whatever God would tell us to do. We just don't know what he's telling us to do, right? Half the battle is figuring out what he tells you to do. So here's my advice for that. And if you're a note taker, write this one down because this one is real. If you don't know what to do, do what you know. If you don't know what to do, do what you know. Many of us are running around begging God to tell us what to do, but we haven't done what we already know to do. Do I take this job or that job? Do I move or do I stay? Do I choose door number one or door number two? We can be paralyzed 
by indecision, trying to figure out what God wants us to do. We don't know what that is, and and it's so frustrating. But we do know that we need people. Because the Bible tells us to need people. We need people. And every study ever has told us we need people. And yet we make excuses for why we don't have people in our life. We know that gratitude is the path to joy because the Bible tells us, and every study ever has told us, that that gratitude works. And a, a few months ago I recommended all of us write down ten things you're totally grateful for. So when you wake up one morning and you're not feeling grateful, you can look at those things and go, I know I'm grateful for those because I wrote the darn things down. So even though I don't feel grateful today, I'm going to thank God for these things because gratitude is the gateway to joy. But I almost guarantee not many of us did it. We know what to do, but we don't do it. Right? We know we need to give. We know we need to read the Scripture. We know we need to forgive people. If you're running out and you're calling out for Jesus to help you and tell you what to do, start with what you know. Do the things you know to do. So Mary turns to Jesus, not knowing what he'll do, but trusting he's going to do something. And she gets out of the way and lets Jesus do whatever he's going to do. And and if you have kids that you pray for, you know how hard this is. You know how hard it is to pray for them and then get out of the way and let Jesus work. It's very difficult. So I don't say that you know, flippantly. I know that's one of the hardest things on the planet is to pray for your kid's soul and then step out of the way and let Jesus take over. But in this morning story, Jesus does work. And I want to spend a few minutes seeing if we can pull out of the way that Jesus shows up for this family that's running out. Because first he starts with what's available. He says, now there were set there six water pots of stone. He looks around the room. What do we have to work with? He doesn't go, boy, if we just had some crystal wine decanters, then I could really do a great miracle. If I just had some decanters so the wine can breathe. No, Jesus starts with what's ordinary. He starts with what's right there. What's on hand? He looks around. He sees empty clay jars. He said, all right, fill those up. Let's start with what we had. He doesn't say, boy, if I just had some grapes, I could speed up the fermenting process. I know how that works. I could really get the noise. like water. If we have water, that's what we're going to start with. We've got jars. We've got water. Ordinary things build into this miracle, which kind of goes back to my point. If you don't know what to do, do what you know. But look around for the answers in, in the ordinary things that are available to you. An awful lot of relationship issues can be miraculously repaired. And I mean miraculously, like God getting involved at an ordinary dinner table. You start with what's ordinary. And you sit down together and you eat a meal and then you create a space where God can do a miracle. The world can be changed reading to your kids at bed at night. Big miracles can happen when we do the ordinary thing. Good old-fashioned kindness and manners and they can go a long way to opening up miraculous doors of opportunity in our lives. I think God can teach us as much from changing diapers as He can from reading Christian books. I think a lot of the time God gives us our spouse and gives our spouse the answers to see if we'll be humble enough to go there for wisdom. Because that can be hard sometimes. We, don't, we, want to, we want to go to a conference and get it from a professional on a stage. A lot of times our spouse has the answer if we'll be humble enough to ask for it. Look for the things that are at hand for your miracle. Over and over again, Jesus takes whatever's at hand to, and ordinary to do the miraculous. He spits on mud to heal the eyes of a blind man. He takes a kid's fish fillet sandwich and feeds 5,000 men plus women and children. He doodles in the dirt to silence a bloodthirsty crowd and free a sinner. 
He uses what's ordinary and at hand to do the miraculous. He's constantly using the ordinary to do his work. So don't be afraid to look for your miracle in the everyday stuff right in front of you and to use it to create the space for God to move. And the next thing that jumps out at me in this story is something that that happens in my imagination when I read this. And that's that, that when did the servants know that the water had become wine? That always makes me crazy. Like, did they, was there a point at which it started to smell different? Did they notice, like, filling it up with water and all of a sudden it starts to smell like wine? Or, or did they dip the ladle and it came out wine? Or maybe they just walked a ladle full of water to the MC and they were like, you know, and they're like, oh, he's going to go off, you know. And he tasted it. Maybe they didn't even know until he announced that it was good wine. I, who knows? Like, and I always wonder this, like uh, when, when Jesus feeds the multitudes, like we know that he, he prayed for the food and he blessed it, and then he told the, the disciples to pass it out. And we don't really know, like did they grab a sandwich and hand it off? They look back in and there's another sandwich? Like, or like we don't really know when it happened, but that had to be incredible to see because the crowd, 5,000 people, nobody out there knew what was happening up here when Jesus was blessing the food. All they knew is the food's coming around. But his disciples, the ones that are involved in it, are like, no matter how much food I give out, there's more food. This is nuts. Like, how cool would that have been? We don't know how the miracle happened exactly or when it happened, but we know that it's this weird, crazy blend of straight from heaven, supernatural miracle, along with something as ordinary as ladling wine out of a jug. Or taking sandwiches and handing them to people. And I think some of the best miracles we have happen that way. 100% straight from God and yet they seem so ordinary. They seem so normal. And finally, the last thing I want to pull from this story is something that God's kind of been laying on my heart for a few months now. Not necessarily from the scripture until I was reading through John, but... Uh, just in my own prayer time. But but when I bumped into it in John, it, it made me go a little deeper and it kind of blew up in my head a little bit. And, it, and it, part of it's in this, in this passage. It says, this is the beginning of the signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. The New Testament has several words for miracle, for things that we consider miracles. Some are specific, like healing or casting out a demon or giving sight to the blind. And it doesn't really say miracle. It just tells you what happened. The Greek language also has a word for miracle. It's used several times. But John clings to this word sign. And it's used to talk about something miraculous, but he doesn't call it a miracle. He calls it a sign. And, and, and he uses it more than anybody else. It, it's something that's very uh, prevalent in John's gospel. But after looking more closely at the way he describes his miracles, it's, it's interesting because it's used kind of like generically. And this is a sign that Jesus did. But I don't think it's generic at all because John tells us in his gospel that if he had recorded everything Jesus did, there wouldn't have been enough papyrus on the planet to write it all down. This is before Wikipedia. I think maybe you could do it now, but back then, like, there's only so much papyrus, you know. And so, uh, and so he says, if I had written down everything, you couldn't even fit it all. But he picks seven. Very important number in Scripture. I think he picked that number on purpose. He chooses seven out of all the things Jesus did to stand for everything else. Um, and he, he elaborates on a few of them. Because some of them, when you read the, like, uh, the stuff that, that some of the other gospel writers wrote, you're like, man, how did John not tell this one? Like, if you're picking miracles, this is a crazy one. Do this one. Uh, but when John elaborates on his stuff, he, 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 uh, 
he talks about the fact that they were signs. That these aren't, he's not just recording miracles. He's giving us particular signs. One of them, he explains this man born blind. And, the, and his disciples were like, is it because of something he did, something his parents did? Like, why is he blind? And Jesus says, no, 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 it's none of that. It's, it's to be a sign. It's so that you can see him be healed. It's so the glory of God can be revealed in him is the way Jesus said it. Like, he's like, the whole reason this guy's blind is to be a sign. This guy is a sign. When Lazarus died, Jesus tells his disciples outright, I'm glad we weren't here to heal him. Because I want you to see the resurrection. Because this is, this is to be a sign. He even tells them, I, I played it out like this for a reason. It's really important because if we, um, if you had enough world-filling miracles to choose from, you have to wonder, why did John pick this list, this weird seven? Everything from saving a wedding family from embarrassment on one end, that's his first miracle, to raising a dead man on the other end, like everything. And then, then you look at some of the miracles in between and, and, and some of the, like I said, some of the ones the other gospel writers write and you're like, why did he rule those out? Why did he pick these? But over and over in the book, John is stressing this is not about what happened, what the miracle is, but why it happened. John is saying these were done to be a sign, to show us something. The man born birth from from or born blind from birth is a sign. Lazarus' resurrection is a sign. John is stressing the fact that Jesus did miracles not just as a blessing to the one receiving the miracle, but also to be a sign to everybody else witnessing it. And that's the thing to hang on to. And that's why uh, I, I think this is important. Not only do we need to take our needs to God, because if we don't, we could cast our pearl before swine, but we also take our needs to God because... The people of God need to see God answering prayers. It's not just for us. God needs to see miracles so that we have stories to tell. We, we need to see God do wonders to build our faith and the faith of those around us. When you have a need, you might, you might have a tendency to, to, to feel like it's selfish to ask for it or, or uh, am I sure this is what I want or, you know... I see God answering, you know, this and that. But, but the thing I think we forget is that we need to see God answer prayers. And if you've got a list of prayers, you're like, nah, that's too silly to ask for prayer, blah, blah, blah. You might be robbing me of seeing God answer a prayer. My kids need to see God answering prayers. That's why I pray just as fervently for prayers that come with that. I know this may seem silly. I pray just as hard for that because I need to see God answer prayers. People go, I know there's a lot bigger issues in the world, but could you pray for... I'm like, no, there's no bigger issues in the world. I pray just as hard for that. I mean, think about it. Jesus provided wine for a family. Talk about first world problems. You know, we're like, oh boy, first world problem. My air conditioner went out of my car. Yeah, first world problems. Like, he didn't want these people to be embarrassed and, and lose face. And so there are no silly prayer requests. Jesus steps up and, and provides wine for a family because, because uh, they were running out. And that is why I think we need to go to God, not just for the answers to our prayers. That's important. But even then, we have that thing, and it's just like, even if he doesn't answer, it is well. It is well. I know, he, I know he's, he's going to take care of me. I know the end of the story. I know things are good. But it's not just about that. It's about the people of God need to see God moving and answering. And when we have a list of prayers we don't bring, then the people never get to see that. 
A sign points to something bigger. If we have a sign that says this is Open Table Community Church and there is no Open Table Community Church, the sign is meaningless. The sign only means something if there's a church that people can come to. The sign is, is, is not about the need all the time. It's about the need meter. It's about the one who meets our needs. So it's not just about taking your prayer request to God because you, you want a need. And, and I mean, that's important. Don't get me wrong. But it's also that it becomes a sign that, that God meets our needs. We need to start hammering heaven and asking God to answer our prayers, not just because we need it, but because the world needs to see it. Our kids need to see it. We need to see it. So how do we respond to this? This is a story about Foro. And I, I think in a, in a world that is driven by Foro right now, I mean, somebody announces a pandemic and all the toilet paper disappears. Like, that is like, the, that is Foro right there. Like, nobody had any idea what toilet paper had to do with coronavirus, but we were afraid of running out. You know, and it's one of those things where once it starts to disappear, we all got to go get some because I don't want to run out either. Right. A world driven by Foro. This story serves as not only an opportunity uh, to, to see God's miraculous provision show up wherever we're running out. But it's also uh, to see the areas where, where we don't have enough as opportunities for God to show his glory to answer in ways that people can see his kingdom and have a story to tell. Last week we talked about how Joshua led the people of Israel across the Jordan River and and God gave Joshua two things to do, build an altar and then tell the story. And Joshua did. He sent people in to get the rocks. They built the altar. And Joshua was supposed to make sure that every Israelite knew what God had done. But the book of Judges tells us that when Joshua died, a generation grew up that didn't know God and didn't know the story. So Joshua built the altar, but he didn't tell the story. And as I was working on this message, I, I, I thought of some of the miracles that God's done in my life. And these are the stories that when I start to tell them, my kids kind of roll their eyes because they've heard them a million times. You know, they, they know these stories. And, but I want to make sure I don't do what Joshua did. I want to make sure my, my kids grow up knowing God and knowing the stories. But this message makes me not just want to keep telling and retelling the same old stories about what God did in the past, but to begin to pray for new miracles. and get to pray that things happen that my kids can see, new signs that God is both there and good and powerful. And I said last week, we need to start telling people our God stories, what God is doing in our lives. And if you don't know what God is doing in your life, then take a closer look at your life. But, but I want to add an addendum to that this week. If, if we can't pretty easily see what Jesus is doing in our lives, then we need to start asking and seeking and knocking and just pestering heaven until God starts to, to do the kinds of things that, that we can't wait to tell people about. Because we need some signs that point to Jesus. And, and if, and if, Jesus is doing things in your life and, and you're, you're, you're not telling people about it, then, then you're in that place of Joshua where you get the miracle but you don't manage the miracle. And you want God to keep doing crazy stuff in your life, turn it into a sign. Start telling people what God is doing in your life and how he's moving in your life. And I think it'll, it'll spark more. We need some signs that point to the fact that in the, in, in the kingdom economy, everything comes from God. 
And there's never any lack. God's kingdom is a kingdom of abundance and, and it all flows from the hand of God. And I, and I hope you know this doesn't just refer to stuff. In fact, it probably refers less to stuff than anything else. When it comes to God's kingdom, it's not just food and money and material things that are provided by God. It's literally everything that's provided by God. In fact, I believe the reason that God bothers to answer our material prayers is because He wants us to know that that uh, that He is there so that we'll also believe that He does everything He says He does. Because more than providing wine or fish sandwiches or even sight or freedom or healing, Jesus comes to provide righteousness for us. That's the primary thing He comes to give us. Because when it comes to righteousness, we should all have foro. Like we should all have furrowed when it comes to our own goodness or holiness or, or righteousness because none of us have enough. We will run out. You do not have enough goodness to get, to get in. And stories like this morning story remind us that, that when we don't have enough, Jesus provides. And that is the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus did not come to demand righteousness. He came to provide it. He came to give it. And this is why we call it good news because everything from the Old Testament law to every rule we learn as children to the laws of our own land, they're all rooted in demanding righteousness. This is how you live. But the gospel doesn't work that way. It's, it's not about demanding righteousness. It's about Jesus providing righteousness. He paid the price for, for, that our sins demanded. And in turn, he offers us righteousness when we put our faith in Him. Ultimately, this morning's story is about every miraculous story in the Bible. And they're all about the fact that God is the one who provides, including our salvation. And if we have Jesus, we have everything. In the economy of the kingdom, Jesus is enough. He is our everything. 